Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. In the prior podcast, our first one on the Middle Ages, we started out by that rhetorical field trip or vacation to a major city around the world. And hopefully we're able to see, understand just how many substantial places, cities around the world today were either put on the world map prior to the Middle Ages or after the Middle Ages. Segwaying into my overall comments about how little progress or advancement we do in this 1,000-year period known as the Middle Ages or hence Dark Ages. I then went ahead and looked at the four institution types of society, political, social, economic, and religious, and then looked at the world, the ancient world that we were leaving, and then the Middle Ages that we were coming to and how those institutions were changing. So then we looked at the uh, characteristics of medieval culture and the characteristics of Christianity overall. So what we're going to start this podcast looking at is the Christian attitude or mindset that some historians, count me as one of them, largely blame or point to for why the Middle Ages is truly known as the Dark Ages. So we're going to look at that, look at the role of education, and then this dawn of the Dark Ages, but also by looking at the impact of our first scholars in the middle, uh, late Roman Empire, early Middle Age time period, that of St. Augustine and St. Jerome. So looking at this Christian attitude and mindset, little doubt, there's very little doubt that And I quote, only that the Roman Catholic Church, excuse me, was the only unifying force in Europe was the Roman Catholic Church. That quote, only unifying force in Europe was the Roman Catholic Church, end quote, was not written by a Roman Catholic, not even written by a a Protestant. That was written by a prominent Jewish scholar in the book called A Convenient Hatred on page 56. And with that reason, though, I I reached out to somebody outside of the Protestant and outside of the Roman Catholic faith is, again, further proof of how scholars, regardless of one's own faith and academic background, there's no doubt as to how prominent a role Roman Catholicism was bearing down on the people of the late Roman Empire into the early Middle Ages. The church was adamant about uniting and recruiting Christians by keeping Roman laws and practices alive. That's extremely important because the, the, if you want to persuade somebody to follow a new way of thinking, a new way of doing something, even a new invention, the more you can talk in their language using the old vocabulary or the old examples the greater your chances of recruiting people 
to your new way of thinking, new invention, etc. Keep in mind, for example, why would you abandon your candles and allow me, an inventor, to bring in electricity to your house to put something to put that electricity towards something like a light bulb? I show you a light bulb. You have no idea just looking at that if you, if you did for the first time <clears throat> how much light that's going to give you. But if the person trying to convince you to accept the electricity and buy these light bulbs tells you that this bulb is a 60 watt, 60 candle watt bulb, you are now being able to draw from their experience, whereas they can picture in their mind how much light would be in this room with 60 candles going. So from there, you have a better chance of trying to sway people over to this new invention or new way of doing things. Same thing works with an engine. How are you going to convert a farmer who had been farming the way his or her parents and grandparents farmed for all of their lives, using the same horses, pulling the same type of plow? Whereas if you were to approach them and say, hey, this engine on this, the end of this plow you can simply just pull a lever to put a little gasoline into the engine and that plow is going to do more work than those horses are going to do. They want a comparison. How much work, more or less? So we to try to quantify that and put it in a vocabulary they understand, we say, well, that this engine is equivalent to five of those horses or five horsepower, a 10 horsepower engine, etc. So the Roman Catholic leadership in the mid to late ages, days of the soon crumbling Roman Empire, in order again to be able to draw more and more people in, were adamant again about keeping those Roman laws and Roman practices alive. When is this birth of Christ? Two, three, four, five hundred years ago now? We don't have a clue. Today in the 21st century, they didn't have a clue then. So let's go ahead and, and link the birth of this Jesus Christ to the one of the most important holidays that was already established in the Roman Empire, the Festival of Lights that we discussed in a prior podcast. So that Easter, we're going to link that to the Festival of Fertility each spring. So that's, that's the second major point about how about the differences here or the characteristics of this Christian attitude slash mindset. However, while those may seem positive, it was thought to outsiders that the Roman Catholic outlook on life was very pessimistic, that the world, the end of the world was near. Jesus himself, from what we know by what was written of his account here on earth, talked about this end of the world, this Garden of Eden, when this life is done. What that started to be, how that started to be interpreted by the masses was that individuals really needn't be concerned about how, you're live, how you are existing in this world, in this life, because your best life here is nothing like that Garden of Eden that Jesus was referring to that awaits us when this life, our life in this world, was over. However, when was that going to come? Nobody, of course, knew. Jesus made reference to this, when I come again. 
I mean, is, is that in this century? Is that in my lifetime? So for hundreds of years after the Roman Empire fell, yes, on the, from an outsider looking in, it could seem like the Roman Catholics were wrapped up with this end-of-life idea, knowing that there's a better life that awaits them after this. Therefore, what that did is fundamentally changed one's understanding of the need for an education. Remember that in basic brass tacks, ladies and gentlemen, we do not learn something quickly or anything that's worthwhile quickly. Sure, we can quickly, we can understand, we can watch somebody learn how to take a nut off of a bolt and know how to do that from here on out. But to understand something, to learn something, that will have a positive effect on our lives for our remaining days on this earth. Education takes time. It takes money. Therefore, early Roman Catholics saw that education wasn't necessary. How better to spend our time to prepare for that second coming and or their own death and resurrection as Jesus promised. But invest the time and money into an education? It's not worth asking those questions. It's not worth spending that time and money. And the leadership of the Roman Catholic Church, they didn't put the idea, push the idea of education either. Why would that be? Well, oftentimes to demonstrate this, by this point that I'm covering this in this podcast, we would be in about the seventh or eighth week of the semester of a traditional 16-week semester. So from there, I would that because we've been together now for almost two months, I asked my students if they remember the first day when I told all of them whether I was one of these faculty that encourages questions or not. And I asked them, you know, re re raise your hand if you remember what I said. And many hands go up and they said, oh, any questions we have at all, ask right then and there. And I said, absolutely. I said, how many of you think that I've followed through with that commitment? And it's nice to see almost, if not every hand go up. And those that don't go up, I ask if they understood the question because I'm all about students asking questions right as we're going over material. I'm not one of these that says, no, 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 wait till the end of the class and then you can ask your questions. No, jump in right now. That's how you get discussions going. However, I, I said, let's go back to that first day when I said, feel free to jump right in and ask any questions that you want. And then imagine that somebody raises their hand, not 20 minutes later, and says, Professor, excuse me, I don't understand I said, can you imagine if I turned around and said, how dare you interrupt me? How dare you raise your hand when I'm in the middle of lecturing? I can't stand that word. In the middle of lecturing. How dare you interrupt my thought process? But by the way, don't forget, if anybody else has any questions, just feel free to raise your hand. I said, would that not have uh, slightly changed the dynamics, the chemistry of how this course was going to progress forward? Sure it would. Why am I saying, hey, any questions at all, raise your hand, but the moment somebody does, boom, I jump on them. Why do, in fact, some faculty not like questions in the middle of class? Sometimes, to give them the benefit of the doubt, it truly is because they feel as though whatever questions the students have, they'll answer by the end of that class period. However, and I've experienced this firsthand, sometimes faculty don't want to have to answer a question with what they perceive to be a deadly three-word answer. 
an answer that begins with I and ends with the word no, K-N-O-W. I don't know. That horrifies some faculty and teachers. It really does. And I'm not trying to belittle them in any way. It's just they don't want to be caught off guard by a student answering, asking a question that they have to turn and say, oh, I, I, I really don't know. It, and not necessarily that it makes them look bad, but because now the rest of the class is going off on a track that they can't necessarily stop. So rather than go there, don't ask questions or simply see me after class. However, one of the things I think that endeared me to my mom and dad as my first teachers to Nelson Diebel, arguably one of my most revered college professors, is the fact that they routinely would say, I don't know, when I would ask a question. I don't know. I love it when I have to answer that to a student's question in class, because that means their mind is rolling. They're progressing. They're thinking outside of the box. And what immediately followed with with I don't know is let's see if we can get that answer right now or give me time into the next class period and let's revisit this and let me do some research on my own. The same token, you do the same thing. Let's see what we come up with by the next class. Roman Catholic Church didn't want to get into that situation. They didn't want an educated population pestering them with questions that they didn't know the answer to. It's bad enough that this Jesus Christ that they are revering, that they are reading those gospel accounts from, and then the subsequent books of the New Testament, like the Acts of the Apostles and all of those letters to James and Peter and Paul, all of them talking about this Jesus Christ. But let's remember the important aspects of his life. Number one, to our knowledge, he was illiterate, so he wrote nothing down. So we have no true proof that what was written about his days was actually the truth. Secondly, this man was killed. There's no way around that. This man was indeed killed. As a result of that, the Roman Catholic Church, on expounding about his life and how we need to live a better, faithful, and more moralistic and ethical life, we don't, they didn't want questions that they couldn't answer. It was this dearth in education. It was this inclination to no longer ask questions is what retrospectively historians have said is the dawn or brings on the dawn of the dark ages. Now, especially again, if you're an ardent Roman Catholic, and again, I am a Roman Catholic. I admitted this in prior podcasts. If for whatever reason you're thinking I'm vilifying the church, cornering them without their defense, not at all. Keep in mind that this 1,000-year period is called the Dark Ages. So at this point, I turned to my classes and I asked them. After the fall of the Roman Empire, we called this the Dark Ages or the Middle Ages. Is there any other age within this age, I asked them. Is this age known by another name or title? A hand never goes up, and that's the right answer because there isn't one. But what age follows this one? I asked the classes. What age follows the Middle Ages? When the Middle Ages draws to a close, what age follows? And most students know the answer and they raise their hands. Oh, the Renaissance. Okay, that's a French word. So let's translate that to English. What does that mean? Re, naissance. 
means rebirth. The most important part of that title or term renaissance is not the long suffix. It's the two-word prefix. Re. Re-meaning again. It is not the naissance that follows the Middle Ages. That would mean birth. Here we are for the first time. No. What follows the Middle Ages is the renaissance, the renaissance. We are born again. I don't mean born again religion, born again Christians, not at all. Meaning the daring to ask questions and educate oneself is born again. It is those soon-to-be scholars of the Renaissance period that are going to reach their arms all the way through this 1,000-year period to grab those dusty manuscripts off of the shelves left over from the ancient world, dust those things off, review them once again, and dare to ask questions once again. And they're going to ask fundamental questions, questions that don't get answered with one words. Questions that oftentimes the answers do nothing more than flip dominoes down for more questions. If you don't believe me, then that as I put to my students, then answer me this. What age simultaneously also happens with the birth of the Renaissance? Now, oftentimes there's a pause and students will raise their hands slowly and say, the age of Protestantism? Bingo. The Protestantism starts. Keep going with that. The age of exploration. Exactly. Protestantism, the Age of Exploration, the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, all of those are ages that are born because the human beings in the 1400s are daring to ask why and how once again. So the dawn of the Dark Ages is known as that because of the disinclination to educate oneself, to ask how and why. If the answer in the Western Christian-dominated world doesn't come from the good book, the Bible, then the question isn't worth asking. It's not necessary. So with the dawn of the Dark Ages, again, we get these Christian, how the Christians fostered these Roman ideas and their institutions to the point of inserting the term Roman into their full title, Roman Catholic Church. One of the first individuals, Roman Catholics might even call him a hero, that being St. Augustine. In his life from 354 to 430 AD, now here's a man that definitely is thinking. That's the whole reason we know about him and say, well, Chris, he's contradicting to you. No, not at all. <laughs> he's not a product of the Middle Ages. He's a product of the late Roman Empire. Again, 354 to 430. The Roman Empire, again, doesn't fall, fade, or move for another almost half century. So this young Roman Catholic scholar, in his autobiography called The Confessions, he was attempting to try to do what Constantine and his followers couldn't do about trying to settle human questions that were bothering them, important ones of the late Roman Empire. First off, this whole notion of evil. If evil is inherent, and the evil don't, to all of us, it's part of our DNA, and the, uh, the evil don't get into heaven, evil ones don't get into heaven, then the question is, are we all doomed? Why bother with a moral life? Why bother following the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church if we've been had from the day we were born? 
with the stain of what they call original sin, going back to the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve eating the apple. Well, here's what's interesting, is my classes usually start leaning forward on this. Look at the word evil. If you're listening to the podcast, put this on pause for a moment. And as I should have said, if you're driving from your driving your car, pull over or do this at another time and replay this later on. But think about the word evil. What is evil spelled backwards? It's L-I-V-E, isn't it? Evil is what is in opposition to life. So the question often begs, with human weakness, what is the difference between somebody that's committed to a life of evil versus human error? Consider this. Imagine that I'm trying to get onto a bus to go to work every day, my new job, and I go to the new place where I stand for the bus, and I've been going for about a week now, and everything's going fine, not even giving it a second thought, get out at the bus stop at 8 a.m., and I'm picked up soon thereafter. But imagine that one day I'm about to get on the bus and it pulls up, and a man comes up behind me, tears at my shoulder and pulls me down and gets on the bus and walks to the back. And I stand up, dust myself off, and get on the bus, and the bus driver tries to act as though they didn't say anything. And I look down, and I see that man that literally just barreled me down, threw me to the ground, and went in, and he glances at me, but thinks nothing of it, like any other day. So I sit on my bus seat, and sit down, and I think, wow, I don't know about this guy. Let's just assume he's having a bad day, and heck, it hasn't even barely started yet, but whatever. But imagine the same thing happens the next day. And the next day, same deal, even though I see him coming, if I don't step out of the way, he's going to blow me out of the way. He's going to push me out of the way to get onto that bus. So finally, I do what is appropriate, maybe long overdue. But the following day, the bus pulls up. And just as I'm about to get on the bus, he comes up from the sidewalk. And just as, about he, just as he is about to push me aside, the police jump out from the bushes and the trees. The bus closes the door and stays put. And the police begin to arrest the man for assault. And right at that time, the police turn to me and say, would you, Mr. Kinsella, like to press charges? Absolutely. And right at that point, a woman runs from her front porch because she saw the blue and yellow lights of the police cars and said, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, what's going on with my son? I say, your son? Yes. This man's your son, the big guy that's pushing me over? Yes. Well, I'll tell you what he's doing. We can tell it out at the police station because I'm going to press charges. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my, I didn't realize Herman was doing that. Doing what, ma'am? Well, he must have been causing problems. You see, he's 23 years old, but he only has the mentality of a fifth grader. Because of his developmental delays and other issues with his mind, he largely is no more than a fifth grader mentality at that. And when he sees something in his way, he sees that as something against him. This is all because of his developmental disability. I am so sorry. Now I ask you, is that human error? Is that a life of evil? There's no way, in my opinion. So if that incident was never rectified where the woman said, oh, from now on, I'll be standing with him and I'll let you get on the bus first, sir. Every morning, I am so sorry. I'll pay for any clothes or any way that you were damaged. I'll pay for it all. 
there's no way you can look at somebody like that and say human error or human life of evil. But let's use an example, one last example, that a little bit more, it may seem on the surface to be more cut and dried. I walk into my classroom and I, flat, I uh, throw out my exams, pass out the scantrons, and say, everybody get your number two pencil out. And just then, Jim in the middle of the classroom realizes he forgot his pencil. So he looks over and he sees Melissa, who was looking to the left, looking away from him, and he grabs her pencil. And he waits for me to say, start the exam. And the moment I say it, he flips over the exam and Jim just starts taking his sweet time taking his exam. I look over and I see everybody's working quietly and nicely except for Melissa, who's got tears running down her face because she doesn't have a pencil. She doesn't know who took it, but she, all she knows is she doesn't have one. So I collect all the exams. And Melissa says, I'm sorry, I don't have a pencil, so I have a zero. And I said, unfortunately, that's, that's true. And with that, I collect the exams and I go off to my office. I give the exams back the next day. Melissa, of course, has a zero. Jim has a 98. Is Jim, who is normal in every way, committing to a life of evil? Or is this just human error on his part? You might say, oh, I already know the answer to that, Chris. Well, wait a minute. Because Jim hasn't decided yet. You say, wait a minute, Chris. You already said what he did. He did that 24 hours ago. Understood. But he hasn't decided if this is human weakness, error, or is this a life of evil? The answer plays out by the next action. We go on with our class. Everybody takes notes. We have a good discussion. And afterwards, I go back to my office and Jim comes in and says, Professor, I want to talk about my exam. Oh my gosh, Jim, your exam, you did wonderful. You got a 98. And he shows me the Scantron. He says, yep, I know I got a 98. But in front of me, he tears up the Scantron and he throws it out. And he says, please give me a zero. I didn't have my pencil. I stole Melissa's. Do you see the difference? Jim didn't try to walk away smug knowing he got a 98 and does everything he can to forget about that wrongdoing he just did. That would have been Judas Iscariot. No. Jim has gone from a Judas Iscariot down that path to one of St. Peter. He admitted he did something wrong. And now he rectified it. You see, by Jim admitting that, he realized, yes, in a panic, I knew I'd fail the exam, so I grabbed a pencil, even if it meant stealing. But then I thought about it, and he repented. That is the difference, folks. That's human error. And here, then, a student occasionally asks, how do we know, then, the individual who is committing to a life of evil versus human error, you can look right in St. Augustine's autobiography, The Confessions. He tells you, translating it using more modern words, coming into the here and now, the bottom line is, people committed to a life of evil commit to what we call the C's. That's right, the letter C. Number one, they are consistent with it. They are consistently engaging in wrongdoing. 
But number two, the second C is the one that commits them to a life of evil, at least up to that point. It's called cover-up. They are not only aware that what they are doing is wrong, but they also turn and make every effort to cover up their wrongdoing. You see, that was the difference with those two examples I used. That 23-year-old man with a, with a fifth-grade mentality, he wasn't trying to cover anything up. Sure, he was consistent what he was doing, but he didn't know he was doing anything wrong, so why hide it? How about with Jim with stealing the pencil? Same. He didn't try to cover it up. He didn't say, come up to my office and say, hey, by chance, anybody say that, you know, maybe I stole a pencil? I just want to be sure because I had that pencil. I took that fair and square from my desk drawer before I left the house this morning. He wasn't trying to cover his tracks. He blew his tracks wide open and said, I did wrong. And that's where, again, as St. Augustine says, so all of you humans out there, all of you Roman Catholics, yes, you're going to do wrong. Yes, you're going to break those Ten Commandments. But you have the opportunity to repent and then move on. Which then brings us to this idea of what we call original sin. And this is what I meant earlier when I said, oh, wait a minute. If we're already supposedly born with this stain of original sin, why bother trying to lead a moralistic life, an ethical life? Because of that original sin. You see, folks, and this is not going to be easy on some ears. I get this. But believe it or not, a baby being born, again, in a Roman Catholic Christian Western mindset or family, a baby being born with that notion of original sin, that gave them, that gives that child something. Yeah, you might say, yeah, Chris, it puts an albatross around their neck, you know, and it puts something negative. No. No, I'm not arguing that it does, but it also gives that infant something else. The original sin brought on by Adam and Eve and the serpent actually did something else for the future of humanity. And the th object, what it gave the future of humanity, I would dare you to say, take it back. That's what we'll look at in the next podcast. So thank you again for listening. Have a great day.